have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Esther chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. Esther chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. And the title of this sermon is Wisdom, Folly, and a Golden Scepter. Well, during my time in seminary, one of the scariest moments, uh, most nerve-wracking moments of the entire process was the oral defense of my thesis. Uh, After spending two whole years writing, countless hours editing and rewriting, it comes down to the day of oral defense. I entered the room and sat across the table from four or five professors who verbally grilled me for several hours. Then comes the moment. They send you out into the hall to wait, and they discuss your fate. It was horrible. (laughs) The, The 20 or 30 minutes I was out in the hall felt like an eternity. Would I pass? Would the last two years of my life all count for nothing? A zillion different thoughts and emotions go through your head in that moment. Well, if that moment was stressful, I can't imagine what thoughts and emotions went through Esther's mind leading up to today's text. Remember, in chapter 4, she committed to enter the king's chamber unasked to plead on behalf of God's people. The penalty for approaching the king uninvited was decapitation. There were literally guards standing behind the throne with axes in hand. If the king extended his golden scepter, she would live. And if he didn't, off with her head. Esther called for a fast of all God's people. She entrusted herself to the Lord, and she prayed. Can you imagine that scene? I just want you this morning to put yourself in her shoes for a moment. What would you think would have been going through your mind? What would your heart feel? You might die in three days. And before we dive into the text, I just want to point out again how much Esther has changed into this moment and just how much she's trusting God. Do you remember... Back in chapter 2, Esther's in the harem. The women in the harem were well-fed. That's what the king wanted. Esther, unlike Daniel and his friends, we learned, took the food. No questions asked. I want us to notice how different she is now. Before approaching the king this time, she's not taking the food. She's fasting for three days leading up to this moment. She's not going to try to win the king with her looks this time. And that brings us to the very first verse of chapter 5. Look with me. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the intercourt of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters. While the king was sitting on his royal throne, inside the throne room, opposite the entrance to the palace. Do you see how much effort the author goes to here to paint a mental image for us of what's going on? 
Esther puts on her royal robes. She's claimed her true identity as a woman of God and is assuming her royal position. She isn't delaying taking action on what she knows God has called her to do. She's prayed. She's asked God for help. And she's obeying his call. I think here of Paul's words in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, where he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. William Carey, one of the greatest Calvinistic Baptist missionaries of all time, said this. He said that when you trust in God's sovereignty, that you should expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. That's exactly what Esther's doing in this moment. She's made her request known to God. She's trusting in his sovereignty. And she's attempting something great for his people. She's standing in the inner court of the king's palace. This is the moment. But the narrator keeps giving us details, doesn't he? Keep looking at verse 1. She's in front of the king's quarters. Are you kind of picturing it in your mind? You can see Esther, can't you? Now the king, he's sitting on his royal throne. Where is he? He's inside the throne room. Where's that? Opposite the entrance to the palace. What's the author doing here? He's slowing things down very intentionally. He's setting the scene and he's saying, focus in here. Get all of the details in your mind. This is where all of the book has been leading us. In fact, look at how the book of Esther works as a whole. Chapter 1 was in the third year of Ahasuerus' reign. Chapter 2 was in the seventh year of his reign. So four years have passed very quickly in the book, from chapter 1 to chapter 2. Chapter 3 was in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus. So five more years have passed. Then, chapters 5, 6, and 7, on the other hand, all take place over two days. Time slows down. The narrator meticulously is painting the scene for us and telling us, watch this, focus in. The Gospel of Mark does this kind of thing too, by the way. He rushes through, and immediately, and immediately, and immediately, he rushes through a ton of Jesus' life and ministry, and then he slows way down on the last seven days leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. That's what's going on here in Esther. And did you catch the first three words of chapter 5? On the third day. On the third day. This is a great little Easter egg that the author has left us. You know where I'm going with this. But before we get there, check this out. Within Judaism, there's this thing called Midrash. 
So think of that as kind of a commentary on the Old Testament. Well, one Jewish midrash points out that Israel are never left in dire distress more than three days. In this midrash, the miracle of deliverance through Mordecai and Esther is compared to events in the lives of Abraham, Jacob, and Jonah, which also involved three days. It quotes Genesis 22, Genesis 31, Jonah chapter 1. Karen Jobes, commenting on this Jewish midrash, notes that it links this miracle to the Jewish tradition that the dead will, quote, come to life after three days from the start of the final judgment. This idea is based on Hosea 6.2, which says, after two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. Look at the text that this Midrash cites, Genesis 22, verse 4. Just to give you context, God has called Abraham to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. Genesis 22, 4, it says, On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. We know how that story ended up. God sent deliverance and rescue and life. Genesis 31, 22, the story of Jacob and Laban. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Again, God intervenes and delivers Jacob from Laban. Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. Jonah has been in the belly of the fish for how long? Three days. Jonah 1, 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Chapter 10 of the next verse says, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. God delivered Jonah, bringing him from death to life after three days. Friends, this isn't a Christian commentary saying these things. It's a Jewish one. It's a Jewish commentator who can't help but see the pattern. God consistently and miraculously delivers after three days over and over and over again. And as Christians, we know this. Look at what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 41. He says, it says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, meaning Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying Jonah was the sign that pointed to what I'm about to do. I'm going to be killed on a cross. I'm going to be buried in the heart of the earth. 
and three days later, I'm going to rise. I'm going to come from death to life. God will deliver miraculously after three days. And in doing so, he'll save his people from certain destruction. Now, the author of Esther didn't necessarily know this, but Abraham, Jacob, Jonah, and Esther herself are all types of Christ. Their stories and their actions point to what Christ will be like. While the narrator probably didn't know that Esther was a type of Christ, he did know that what he was cluing into it, us into here was truth. That there was going to be a God-ordained, miraculous deliverance on the third day. Let's keep reading. The suspense is palpable. What's going to happen? Verse 2. After all of this waiting and praying and anticipation, and when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Esther's head is safe. The golden scepter is extended. She's given grace and mercy and life. And notice what she does. This happens several times in this chapter. She may have flouted the rules in coming into the palace, but now she honors the king. She recognizes his authority. She reaches out and touches the tip of the scepter. Over and over again, we're meant to see Esther's wisdom in this chapter as a clear contrast to Haman. God is moving in her winning favor with the king, and she's wisely submitting to his authority. Verse 3, And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even up to half of my kingdom. So for the first time in our text, King Ahasuerus is actually perceptive. One commentator notes that in every other instance in the book, the king either appears drunk, dense, or depraved. Not here. He's getting it. And notice for the first time, he calls her queen. Again, all but one instance of Esther being called queen come after her decision to identify with God's people. Hazuerus knows that she didn't go to all this trouble. She didn't risk her life just for fun. She has a request. He perceives that. What is it? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. Now, he doesn't actually mean this. Uh, this phrase was an idiom commonly used by ancient royalty, essentially meaning, hey, I'm feeling generous. It's the same language King Herod used in Mark chapter 6, verse 23, when John the Baptist's head ends up on a platter. It'd be like saying, how can I help you? I'll do whatever you want. Now, think about this situation. If you were Esther... What would you say at this moment? 
if it were me, I would just launch right in. Well, king, I'm glad you asked. I'd love for you to revoke the death decree on the Jews. Thanks. I'll just head back outside, and then I'll see you in another month. Great chat. Bye. But what does Esther do? Verse 4. And Esther said, if it please the king. You see the wisdom here? She, she starts out, if it please the king. She's building him up, which we know he's into. If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Man, this is wise and wild at the same time. Instead of flat out asking the question she came to ask, she invites the king to a feast. Why would she do this? Ian de Guid invites us to consider all of the four hurdles she had to overcome in this moment. Number one, she was asking for the reversible or, or the reversal of an irreversible law, which had been sponsored by the most powerful man in the, in the empire and signed with the king's own signet ring. So that's hurdle number one. Second, granting her request would cost the king, remember, 10,000 talents. Less than half of his empire, to be sure, but no small sum. So, reversing an irreversible law, he's losing all of that money that Haman promised him if he reverses this decree. And then third, he says, perhaps even worse, though it would be hard for the king to accede to her request without losing face, since the edict had been officially authorized by his own person. He's losing face by reversing this decree. Fourth and finally, in order to make her request, she would have to reveal her hidden Jewish identity, asking a potential backlash or risking a potential backlash from the husband she had been deceiving for the past five years. Do you see that? This is a weighty request. In other words, Esther knew that she needed to stack the deck in her favor before asking her question. So, she invites the king to a feast that she'd prepared. Side note, the fact that she had prepared the feast ahead of time just clues us into the fact that she had at least a little bit of faith that she wasn't going to get her head chopped off. But here's where it gets wild. Not only did she invite the king to the feast, but she invited Haman. That's nuts. She could have just wined and dined the king and asked her question. But she decides to dine with the devil. She's going to raise the issue with her enemy in the room. And while this isn't at all the point of this text, it's a great principle. If you have an issue with someone, you don't go and talk about them behind their back. You say it with them at the table. As a pastor, if you come to me to voice an issue with someone else in the church, my first question to you is going to be, have you talked with them about it? And this is a good practice for all of us. Are you a safe space for gossip? Do, do people know that they can come talk to you about others and that you'll join in or encourage them in their gossip? 
Don't be a safe space for gossip. Point each other to the offending party. Esther's going to tackle the issue head on with Haman at the table. And look at what happens next. This is awesome. Verse 5. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. The literal translation here is actually that the king acted according to the word of Esther. (laughs) The lowly Jewish servant girl is giving directions to the two most powerful men in the known world. And they're eating out of her hand. It's meant to be comical. I hear some of you laughing. That's good. Ahasuerus and Haman are being mocked by the author of the book. It's a complete role reversal. Consider who holds the power in this chapter. It's not the powerful king or his most elevated official. It's Esther. Verse 6. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, oh man, the last two times the king was drinking, things got crazy, didn't it? What's going to happen this time? And as they were drinking wine after the feast, The king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. He says it again. The king's dying to know what Esther wants at this point. She's wisely built so much suspense. I love verse 7. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, Here we go. She's about to drop the bomb. My wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and to fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. What in the world, Esther? Just say it already. Is she getting cold feet? I remember calling up Shannon's dad to set up dinner to go ask for her hand in marriage. We went out to dinner at a place called Cheddar's. Waited in the lobby for a table, talked all about the football games from the weekend. Finally got seated and I continued to talk about football. I was so nervous to ask the question that I came to ask. Is this one of those moments for Esther? Is she nervously delaying? I don't think so. Again, this is wisdom on display. Look at what she's done. First, she she has the king on the edge of his seat, wanting to be generous to her request. And he's already semi-committed to answering favorably, once in verse 3, a second time in verse 6. Now, notice how she framed her request in verse 8. She said, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast. In other words, by committing to the feast tomorrow, by showing up, 
You're committing yourself to say yes by your presence there. By this time, the king is hooked. She's, she's lured him in, and he just has to know what her request is. And if he backed out of the second feast, there would be three very public strikes against him. He'd lose face, which is all he has at this point. This is brilliant. Esther has checkmated the king before ever asking her a question. She's a display of wisdom. She fasted and sought the Lord, and he gave her wisdom. Now, God doesn't promise us any less today. Look at James 1, verse 5. It says, if any of you, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. You probably won't, I hope, be going to your boss with the possibility of getting your head chopped off three days from now. But each and every one of us have areas of life where we need God's wisdom. Ask him. He will give it generously to all. Are you a part of all? Yes, you are. Ask him. Esther is a model of wisdom. And in sharp contrast to wisdom is folly or foolishness. In steps Haman. Look at verse 9. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. You see what's happening here? Haman gets his prideful ego stroked by being invited to the queen's banquet. He's pumped. Everything's right in the world, and life is good. He's joyful and glad of heart. But it all turns on a dime the moment he sees Mordecai. Why is that? Mordecai refuses to stroke his ego like everyone else. He refuses to tremble before him. He's not fearful. Do you see Haman's idol? An idol is anything you cling to for ultimate security or satisfaction. Whatever you give your heart to other than God. For Haman, it's the praise of people. That's what gets him up in the morning. That's what he can't do without. One commentator says it perfectly. He says, what Haman craved above all things was not simply significance, but rather being seen to be significant. Think about it. Haman hasn't lost any actual power here. He's still got the second highest position in the government. He's still wealthy. He's getting invited to parties with the king and queen. 
But just one lowly man refusing to praise him sends him over the edge. If only our own idols were so easy to spot. Friends, this is why God's word and Christian community are so vital to us. We can tend to be so blind to our own idols. We can be sinfully unaware of where our hearts find true satisfaction. But God's word is a clear mirror. The Holy Spirit uses it to expose our hearts and graciously show us where we're looking to be filled in other places than God himself. Alongside God's word, we have the gift of Christian brothers and sisters who love us enough to to speak the truth in love, using God's word to correct us, encourage us, and if need be, rebuke us. Again, that's why it's so important for each of us to know and be known by one another. John Calvin says that our hearts are constant idol factories. They're constantly pumping out idols. He's right about that. We need to have our idols exposed so that we can repent and reorient our hearts to God. This is a daily, this is an hourly thing for us as Christians. We need brothers and sisters in Christ to gospel us in telling us the truth about ourselves and the truth about Jesus. So, what does Haman do? He goes to his missional community. They gently use God's word to expose his idol. They give him godly advice. They circle around him and pray for him. He thanks them for caring enough about him to point him to God. And he finds true satisfaction in God. Unfortunately, that's not what happens, is it? Haman decides to take a page from Ahasuerus' playbook, and he invites all of his buddies over to show them how great he is. Look at verses 10 and 12. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself, and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servant of the king. Verse 12, Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also, I am invited by her together with the king. Haman would have loved social media. (laughs) Just broadcasting to all his friends how great his life is and how great he is. Look at all my stuff. Aren't I awesome? Built for him. And then comes one of the more sad lines of the chapter. Verse 13. Yet all of this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Ouch. Can you imagine being one of Haman's sons hearing him say this? 
Haman's idolatry runs deep. He's saying, if I gained the world, but I didn't have the praise of that one man, I'd be unsatisfied, unfulfilled, unhappy. I wonder, what is that for you this morning? If you had everything, a great family, great job, a home, friends, hobbies, what is it that would still be missing, leaving you unfulfilled? What is the one thing that you can't do without? On the other side, what if you were to lose everything, but still have that one thing? Would you be satisfied? What is that for you this morning? Whatever that is, is your functional God. St. Augustine wrote in his Confessions, Our hearts are restless until they find rest in God. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in God. Every human soul, every human soul craves a bare minimum of three things. Intimacy, destiny, and meaning. Intimacy, destiny, and meaning. What is meaning? It's belief. It's what roots us in who we are and how the world works. It's faith. What's destiny? It's knowing that there's something in the future that we look forward to. It's hope. What's intimacy? It's our insatiable desire to be cared about, seen, and known. It's love. And here's the deal. God is the only one who can ultimately fulfill those soul cravings. Intimacy, destiny, meaning, faith, hope, and love. If we're looking elsewhere, if we're looking for the praise of man, or to our jobs, or to our stuff, or to anything else, we'll always be unfulfilled and unsatisfied. Only God can ultimately satisfy. If only Haman's wife and friends had counseled him in this way. But they didn't. Look at verse 14. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. That's 75 feet, by the way. Let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. First off, do you see how important it is to have godly counselors around you? Proverbs 15.22 says, Without counsel, plans fail. But with many advisors, they succeed. Yet, who those counselors are is vital. 
It, it doesn't matter at all if you have a multitude of counselors, if they're ungodly and unwise. Haman had a multitude of counselors. And their advice was horrible. Spoiler alert, it led to his death. So I'll ask you this question this morning. Who's around your wisdom table? I think everyone should have what I call a wisdom table. A handful of men or women who can give you godly, wise, scripture-filled, Holy Spirit-led advice. When you have a big decision to make, or when you're depressed or angry or grieving or confused, who's around your wisdom table speaking into your soul? Who it is matters. Haman's wife and friends see that Haman's upset, and they encourage him in his sinful idolatry. Do you see that? Oh, you're ticked at Mordecai because he won't fear you or praise you? Get rid of him. Kill him. Trust your feelings, Haman. The problem isn't in you. It's him. Get him out of the way. That'll solve everything, Haman. But you and I know that this wouldn't have solved anything. If he had killed Mordecai, there'd be another Mordecai and another Mordecai and another Mordecai as long as he lived. Here's what I want us to see. The world's idols can never fulfill what they promise. They overpromise and underfulfill every time. They'll always leave you wanting and empty. They may feel good for a time, maybe, but in the end, you'll always be unsatisfied. Haman's friends fed his idol instead of loving him. They recommended building a gallows as big as his ego, 75 feet tall. Have Mordecai killed, then go party with the king, eat, drink, and be merry. This idea pleased him, and he had the gallows made. As a contrast to the wisdom of Esther, this is utter foolishness. Now, if you, if you followed that last verse, verse 14, you're meant to go, uh-oh, Esther's plan was great, but Haman's going to have Mordecai killed in the morning, several hours before Esther's plan goes into effect. It's kind of like baseball when a runner's rounding third and the center fielder winds up to hurl the ball home. Who's going to make it there first? I wonder, if, I wonder if God's still paying attention and in control. Esther 5 leaves us on yet another cliffhanger. But before we close, I want to finish by taking us back to the throne room at the beginning of this chapter. Consider what exactly happened. Esther was able to approach the throne. Mercy and grace was extended through the golden scepter. She was given life instead of death. 
I believe that in this scene, we're meant to consider the gospel yet again. Martin Luther saw this as well. Karen Jobes notes that Martin Luther, for example, associated the king's scepter with the gospel of Jesus Christ. In his exegesis of Psalm 2.9, quote, you will rule them with an iron scepter, Luther writes, this is the rod before whose tip in the hand of Joseph, Joseph Jacob bowed, and whose point the blessed Esther kissed. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. We, like Esther, can approach the throne of God and be given grace and mercy. We can be given life and not death. But let's be clear about one thing. Our entrance into the throne room isn't without cost. It came at the greatest cost, actually. It came at the death of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. The only reason that the golden scepter is extended to us, the only reason that that we are given life, is because he was given death. Because he bore the wrath that was reserved for us. We get to enter the throne room. And nothing can separate us from God's love. We can freely and confidently bring all of our burdens, concerns, and sins before the throne of God. If you're a Christian, if you've turned from sin and trusted in Christ... The golden scepter is extended to you. Praise God for that truth this morning. If you're not a Christian, we invite you to come. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ as your only hope of salvation. Because he died in our place for our sin, and because he rose on the third day, your sins can be forgiven. You can come into the throne room of God. Your soul cravings can be filled. And your heart can ultimately find rest in Christ. So we invite you to come to him this very moment. Let's pray.